Diego is a good friend of mine and a truly inspirational teacher. More than any other teacher I know, he creates opportunities for students to learn something that they can't unlearn. A new way of seeing the world that gives them resources they didn't have before. I would call that the essence of true learning, but as teachers we so often give in to the pressure of teaching in a standard style. This episode is a must-listen for teachers who are inspired to help their students to really benefit from their education. I have had experiences where the school encourages you not to let anyone fail. And when you have that sort of system, that's basically what you're doing, right? You're not exactly teaching to the to the lowest level student, but by not letting anyone fail, by not letting anyone uh, come up short, uh, you're guaranteeing everyone's on the same level. Right. Uh, but luckily, you know, recently in my teaching experiences, uh, no, no, I've been teaching toward the, the higher level in the classroom. Uh, which, which is in, in itself brings its own challenges because you need to kind of count on those students to help bring up everyone else with them. Uh, so if there's ever a big gap in the class between the, the top of the class and the bottom of the class, that's when you run into a lot of issues. So it requires you to be a better teacher in a sense, right? That you need mm. to actually understand how you can use the higher level students in the classroom to help the lower level students as opposed to making it maybe a, the teacher has to decide who they're teaching to, mm. you have to kind of create more of a community around that classroom. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, any good classroom is going to be a community, right? It's going to be more than just a teacher and students and these sort of static relationships. It's going to be a set of uh, different relationships of people trying to understand each other and having different roles they play in the room. Uh, and when I feel like I feel like when I do a good job of that, uh, there's a family of people who may not all be at the same level, but they have respect for each other and they have trust in each other. And even if they're not getting everything, they're trusting one another to move them along in the direction that I'm kind of pointing them in. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm just the facilitator. This is actually something on a book that you recommended me, right? The Parker J. Palmer book the, yeah. the, about education. What was the name of the book? I the Courage to Teach. The Courage to Teach, right. And I really liked that book because it made me, especially as a kind of a, um, what would it be, like an outsider teacher, right? Like I didn't do a teaching qualification. I came to Japan mm. as an English teacher yeah. and kind of grew into the role of, you know, teaching at an international school now. And it really made me feel like a big part of the teaching experience and a big part of what's really good for students is to have a teacher who treats this as a vocation and who looks at their classroom and thinks, how can I help these students get from where they are now closer to where their goals are, closer to where they want to be in the future? And and that's a real struggle, um, but it's something that I really take seriously in my job. And I think that's the reason why, you know, I'm going into my, or well, I'm midway through my third year at, um, at a school now, which is a is a really really great school and to have that opportunity is uh yeah something i'm really grateful for but i think it's also yeah. part of having that kind of attitude towards teaching which is i'm looking after them i'm i'm a a guide for them in some sense we have a duty of care to students right uh and through this duty of care that's how we gain our authority Authority is created by the fact that we have to take care of these people and we have to help them achieve certain things to get to a point in which they can find the path to their own life satisfaction, life happiness. Mm -hmm. And it's through that duty to care that we uh, can call ourselves teachers, right? When we don't have uh, this duty, then we're kind of just people in the classroom juggling 
making people laugh, showing movies, hoping nobody figures out that we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I think what you're describing, this sort of imposter syndrome, is really, really common for, for uh, teachers who... Especially new teachers. Yeah, yeah, especially new teachers, uh, especially those who never planned on being teachers, and, you know, like myself. I, I was just like you. I came to Japan for uh, a year. I, I planned for it to be a year just to have some fun, you know, go to some temples, eat some... Uh, uh, mochi and, and whatever uh, and, and then the longer that I stayed here uh, I realized that I was getting a lot of satisfaction from teaching mm. I really enjoyed being in the classroom and I enjoyed helping students achieve certain things uh, but at the same time you realize that you don't have the training you don't have the experience you, you just showed up one day and you have knowledge but the ability to uh, transfer that knowledge from yourself to others, to transfer the passion from yourself to others, that's not something that always comes naturally. Yeah. And so I'm wondering how, because you're one of the most creative and most influential teachers for me that I know. <laughs> and I, I always wonder, like, how is it that your students are so... Um, I don't know. I, you've told me stories about like how your students are like, you know, you're sick one day and they're like trying to find out what happened to you. Are you okay? <laughs> like they, they sure. really all missed your classes or something. And, and I, I somehow in, in some sense, I want my students to love me as much as your students love you. No. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but I wonder like how, what is it that you do in your classroom that actually helps students um, and, and also helps them to recognize that they can do so much for themselves. They can improve themselves so much. They have so many opportunities. Yeah. What is it that you do to do that? Well, just to finish on the, the first point, I think it's connected to the second point, is that the way that you get over the imposter syndrome is that you start to think of yourself as a teacher. It's not just your job, yeah. but you know when, when that student emails you at 10 o'clock at night, because they can't figure out this part of the homework that you assigned. Yes, there's a part of me that says, hey, you know what? I only work from this time to this time. I'm tired. Leave me alone. I had to talk to you for four <laughs> hours today already. Uh, but, you know, there's a part of you that this little kid is struggling to understand this complex idea that's going to help them better understand the world. Right. And when you want to respond to that and you want to get training in knowing how to respond to that and you want to get training in knowing how to set up your classroom and you want to read books to, to better understand how to transfer these ideas from, from the paper to the, to the room or from your, your brain to the room, uh, that's when you start to embody the role of a teacher, I think, mm. uh, which is, I think, the, the idea in the courage to teach, right? You're in this incredibly vulnerable situation. You are standing in front of an audience of 30 to 40 people in, in a time in their life where they could be very mean or, or yeah. they are very critical. Oh, especially they're going through so much when they're... Oh. I'm teach, we're both teaching high school. Yeah. Um, and high school kids... I think the only thing that's as hard as teaching high school kids is ki teaching kindergarten, which I did for <laughs> several years as well. But yeah, it's it's very hard because you they're in all kinds of different emotional states right. and they're going through so much especially right now some of my third years are so panicked about mm. university entrance exams because we've had this coronavirus pandemic they've been learning everything online they don't have the same grade standards to back up what they've been doing because they've had mm. essentially three months of online education which doesn't count for the same thing as being in the classroom for some reason and that's one of the the big issues with the um uh, a lot of the modern, not modern, but I guess the, the traditional uh, way of teaching and assessing, right? Uh, it sets it up to be competitive, not just between the students, but it's a competition between the teacher and the student. Uh, when a teacher wants to give a student a grade that reflects their input or reflects their ability, the student feels attacked because in some ways they are. We are 
perhaps in a small degree, but we are decreasing their chances of getting into that school they wanted to right. go to. So in some like, sense, it's adversarial. Absolutely, right? And, and that kind of relationship is not something that breeds trust. It's not one that breeds uh, a, a positive class environment. So how do you do that then with a student? How do you breed trust so that they, when you, I mean, and I, yeah. I have a way of doing this, and maybe I'm curious about yours as well, but yeah. the way I do this is that I set it up as consequences for um, in advance of what happens. So I don't just randomly assign them a grade or give them a grade mm. that makes them feel like, oh, why did Mr. Moritz do this to me? Yeah. I explain beforehand and I set it up so that it's like, this is exactly what I'm looking for in this class. These are exactly the kind of values that I want this class to have yeah. and to, to hold up as important values and so when you meet these values you'll get great grades and if you you know and, and I obviously this is a little bit more complicated in the classroom I'll show them more exactly what I'm going to do but then I make it so that if you get this it's because of a consequence of doing this and I'm not doing this to you this is something that you have complete control over. I think you're hitting it right in the head right because a lot of students experience school as something being done to them and I can relate to this. You know, I remember when I was in high school, my, my mom would wake me up at 7 o'clock in the morning, maybe 6.30, and I hated it because I was sleepy and I was tired, mm -hmm. and I would have to go to school, and I'd have to pack my, my brown paper bag for lunch, and I had to go to these classes I couldn't stand because I didn't care about them and be around people who, you know, I, mean, I didn't get along with everyone. I did have some friends, but um, it wasn't a great experience. It felt like a punishment. Right. Right. And part of the way that uh, at least I try to reduce that is, is by showing that I am vulnerable as well, right? It's remembering that these kids, if they are mean, if they are, you know, lazy, quote unquote, if they are any of these things that we think of as being bad kids, that it's a reaction. And it could be a reaction to the oppression that they feel in school, in the classroom, or in, or in the school generally. It could be a reaction to the oppression they feel at home. It could be a reaction to oppression they're feeling in society. But they feel small mm. and vulnerable. And I try to show my vulnerability as well, right? Because again, you're up there and you're talking and maybe I'll make a mistake or maybe I don't have something prepared or I don't know something. Mm. Uh, for me, the, the biggest indicator of a teacher who is really bringing their truth selves to the classroom, uh, trying to do the best that they can, is the teacher who will say, I don't know. Right. When a student asks a question that they don't know the answer to. Is a teacher who will say, let's find out together. I don't know. Or a teacher that will be open about what they're going through. If you know a student says, are you okay today? It was so sweet. I had a student actually, um, I don't want to say her name, but she's a... She's a What's the best word? She's a firecracker. She's uh, <laughs> not a bad kid at all, but... Uh, not a great student, though. She's very bright, but she does not like to do her work. Right. Uh, I have a lot of students like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, every time we start class, I say, how is everyone today? You know, something along those lines. And the other day she said, Mr. Madrano, every day you ask us how we are, but how are you? And poof, I was, you know, uh, it, it's such a small thing. But it's a, it's a small example of this kid who, even though I have yet to uh, capture their interest in the subject, I've won their affection to some extent. And by having that affection, they're going to pay attention in class. So what is it that you do to get that? Because it's not hmm. something that you can really... There's no like algorithm or like no. uh, uh, an equation that you can just say, like, hey, we'll work, do this, prepare these kind of classes, and your kids will like you. Yeah. What is it that you do... 
that I, really helps the, tr- the students to really trust you. I am as me as I can possibly be, uh, with the exception, of course, of you know the, the sort of language I use and the sort of things I do in the classroom. Uh, I talked before about vulnerability, and vulnerability comes from truth, right? Being true about yourself and who you are. Uh, I, I've I've seen different teaching programs, right? I, I got uh, my my teaching certificate later on, and and to do that I had to um, read some stuff and I had to go to lectures and I went to AP training, uh, and then online IB training and all these different things. And there are different approaches to teaching, and one of the ideas is there some at least for some of these systems is that there is an ideal classroom approach for all teachers that it's the student-centric classroom, or it's the teacher-centric classroom, or it's the subject-centered uh, uh, classroom, Okay. right? Um, but it really depends on the person. Right, and I've noticed that, actually, that the, some of my favorite teachers at school were, um, you know, I've tried to emulate them, and it doesn't quite fit. Right. It doesn't fit me. Yeah. So, like, even my, my favorite teacher of all time, Mr. Jones, who's fantastic, <laughs> my philosophy teacher, I ended yeah. up studying philosophy at university, and uh, I've taken it very seriously my whole life because um, I had that teacher who encouraged that kind of curiosity and that thoughtfulness. And um, I've tried to be like him where I, you know, a student has an idea about something and I just create a whole class on that. Mm. And I, I it, you know, and the way that he would make it so that it was really, really student focused. It was yeah. always about the student. He wasn't like the guardian of knowledge. He was more like the, that's interesting. Let's have a discussion about it. And I... I've struggled sometimes to to do that kind of thing because I don't know if that's my style. I don't know if that's how I should be as a teacher. It, I, I teach political science, and I would imagine that if I came to the room and I handed a kid a copy of, you know, The Republic, and I said, hey, read this and we'll have a test, it would be a disaster because they just don't have the ability or they don't have the parts of themselves in place to be able to process this written work in this uh, that was written in a particular way enough to understand it, be comfortable enough with it to be tested on. Okay. It's not true to them and how they learn. So is that your, is your, part of your way is scaffolding or what is it that you do that um, allows yeah. the students to go, oh, okay, sure. Mr. Madrano has really you know, got this, made this understandable <laughs> for me. Yeah, I mean, that's the second part. So the first part is, you know, be, be true to yourself. I am not a serious person. <laughs> okay. I don't like to have a conversation that doesn't have jokes. I don't like to have a conversation that, that we don't laugh or, uh, you know, tease each other or right. have a good time. I mean, what's what's the point of studying? I have a lot of teacher jokes that I tell in, the, in my class too. And I, I yeah. sometimes, I, and especially when I'm teaching lower level English students, like I taught um, L4 generals last year, which is like L4 is like the, the lowest level that our school offers yeah. and um, going all the way up to L1s. Yeah. And um, the... I would always have like one or two kids in the class who were good enough at English to get my little like teacher jokes <laughs> and they would kind of laugh and the other kids would be like, what's so funny? They'd look at them like, what's, why are you laughing? <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah. I always, I don't know. I always liked having those kind of like little jokes in the class. So yeah, I've been very lucky in that I get to teach the, the, the topics that I'm really, really passionate about. Right. right. I got my, uh, my master's in international affairs. I get to teach international relations. I get to teach political science, world history, all these things. And so I'll make a, a joke, but it's a historical joke or I'll, I'll make a joke, you know, like, like I'm sure those kind of like, sometimes you get crickets. <laughs> well, oh, every single time. Right. Here's the thing. The students know I'm not funny at all. Uh, you know, why, why does, uh, why does Karl Marx hate British tea? Um, because property is theft. 
<laughs> right. That's, I no, get it. But the thing is, but they that's don't... like a ha kind right. of laugh. Oh, well, I yeah. didn't even get a ha. But the thing is, they know that I am being 100% Mr. Madrano. Oh, okay. And, okay. and by doing that, even though it's not funny, they know that I'm not, you know, bullshitting them. Right. I'm not in it's there. Like you're being yourself. Right. And therefore, it's kind of a safe place to be themselves as well. Right. Um, so how many how many of those students do you think go into other classes and have the the teachers like trying to put on the facade of a teacher, teacher. like I'm a teacher teacher and that yeah. puts the kids off completely. It can even put a kid off a subject that they might have otherwise liked yeah. because actually they feel like their teacher is not being authentic. Well, I, I want to say two things about that. The first one is that at my school, my particular school, I feel like I'm lucky in that we have a lot of really great teachers. Um I think that there are certain classes and subjects in which there's more opportunity to show yourself, mm-hmm. especially in the, in the humanities and the right. social sciences, uh, literature classes, all that stuff. Uh, mathematics, it may be more difficult, or at the same time, I think of somebody like Bill Nye, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, whatever you think about his Netflix show or, or his personal politics, uh, the way he teaches science or the way that Neil deGrasse Tyson teaches science right. is not the way I learned science. Right. I hated chemistry. If my chemistry teacher is listening, it's not your fault. I'm sure I'm just a bad student. (laughs) But I hated chemistry. But seeing these people being so enthusiastic and authentic, Mm. that makes a big difference. So that's number one. But number two is, even though I'm being authentic to myself, I need to understand that students learn in different ways. Right. Some students are going to be great at writing. They're going to want to write five essays during class and, and have all their exams be written exams. Some students are going to be great at speaking. Uh, for my last midterm, for example, I decided I decided to cut it in half. Uh, half your grade would be determined by a research video that you make, right? You had to record your screen, and you're using um, this software so that you're also your webcam is casting your face while it's recording your screen. So you'd give a presentation on part of you know the the ideology of of Nazi Germany, for example. Okay. Right. And for, for your world history classes. For world history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, home ec. It was, no, just, yeah. It was, <laughs> it was, like, it was very awkward. Like, <laughs> uh, PTA meeting. Uh, no, yeah, it was for world history. And, you know, there were students who, because they had that freedom and because they have this uh, medium, there's this one girl who uh, uh, made this amazing presentation on the life of women in Nazi Germany. Wow. Right? Uh, that she was able to provide uh, graphics and statistics, and it was very well spoken. And she was able to perform and show herself in ways that she may not be able to show in a written exam, right. on a paper exam. So you need to offer these different sorts of assessments, which is a lot more work for the teacher. Right. And you would hope you're at a school that supports you in that and that offers you uh, compensation enough that you have enough time to to fulfill these responsibilities and yet make enough salary to, to cover your living expenses. Uh, but yeah, and, and doing those things, I know that I'm going to be touching uh, the the heart and soul of at least every student at some point during that term. And hopefully it's through that one experience, at least that one experience, that I hook them. Mm. And they decide to put in that extra effort at the other parts of the term and and succeed. Right. So tell me a little bit about this um, this thing you told me about before, which actually I'm I'm planning on doing in my own class, which was the I think it was in world history you mm. talked about Soviet Russia, <laughs> and you did something like denunciations with your students. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So world history. Uh, I mean, did you enjoy world history when you were a student? Um, I think I enjoyed some of it, but I think um, 
I think there was a large focus on understanding facts. And actually what I've always Mm. loved is understanding the stories and the people in history. So um, there's a really great channel on YouTube that I like called Extra History. And they do these short animations where they talk about something, I don't know. And one of the ones that I saw that I really liked was they were talking about um, Japanese history. And, you know, we live in Japan. I wanted to know a little bit more. Like my students, a lot of my students are really into Japanese history. Sure. Um, And to, to understand it, I thought... Like, this video was not like, okay, well, then there was a battle in 1676, and this many people died, and on this side, and (laughs) this side, and this caused blah, blah, blah. It was was nothing to do with that. It was like, this character, this person, like Nobunaga or something, he was... Um, he was torn between his need for this. And, and I was just like, whoa, okay, so all of these stories from history are about human beings. They're all about people. And so many of them are still relevant today because we're not we're not so different from those people. We might have science and we might have modernity and we might have technology, but we don't realize how similar we are in terms of our human needs and emotions to people of old. And, and we think we're... A, away from it because it's been 70, 80 years since World War II. Mm. Like, we're not that far away from it. It's not that different. You can trace a direct line between, uh, from the world today to, you know, the world of the past, right? I mean, that's, Mm. I mean, the past is prologue, Mm -hmm. uh, as people say. Um, I can pinpoint the moment I fell in love with uh, antiquity, uh, with ancient Rome, for example, uh, when I read I, Claudius, Mm. right? Uh, Robert Graves. I, Claudius is this uh, fictionalized history of the life of Emperor Claudius uh, of, of the Roman Empire. And it is both historical and it brings the actual life of the time to life, if that makes mm. sense. Right? Because it deals with the politics of what's happening. It deals with the personalities of what's happening. And you know the stakes and you know what's up for grabs. And to see these people acting like people, like mm. people we see today, the, the greed and the love, the passion, the betrayal, the, the tomfoolery, uh, it really interested me. And in part because, like I said before, I have my passion in, in political science. To see that play out in history, well, suddenly, wow, I want to know more about this. And that's why in my world history classes, I uh, have actually decided, it, it's been really tough. I teach uh, in an international program. It's not an international school. So we have quite a bit of freedom in creating our curriculum. Um, I want to offer my students as much value as they can receive. And something like half of our students go to study at universities abroad. I want them to be able to go to an American university with AP credits. I want them to be able to go there with something to show on their CV, the resume, that makes them stand out. At the same time, a lot of these AP textbooks, a lot of these textbooks generally, are designed in a way to eliminate the sort of uh, stories that that you described and that I just described that make people fall in love with history. Wow. And and so it brings up the question of education. Is education here to prepare us with a certain set of criteria so that we can be... I don't know, we can be employees, so we can be citizens of a certain kind, so that we all have a certain uh, level of background knowledge to have a shared culture? Or is the purpose of education to enliven the soul, to bring somebody to a fuller plane of existence, to liberate 
uh, the person. Um, and so because of that, for my seniors, uh, we mostly have moved away from traditional textbooks. We use two books that uh, technically are IB, but we only use little sections of them, plus um, uh, copies from other books I make and, and articles I find, and activities to learn history. We just did the Weimar Republic and Hitler's Germany, for example. Mm -hmm. And near the end of that, we have a uh, Nazi war crimes trial. So we had, uh, we had an Eichmann, we had a couple of regular German citizens who participated in Kristallnacht, who, uh, the, the, who participated in like these um, uh, crimes against Jews, uh, breaking down businesses, lighting hospitals on fire, schools on fire, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And they're put on trial. Now, the, this has happened before, right? There have been Nazi trials before. The students have access to all this history. But by going through it themselves and by uh, becoming those characters themselves and by having uh, witnesses as well, people who, uh, who experience the violence, they have to find historical per people to play. Uh, people, Jews at that time, or uh, gay people at that time, or people with uh, disabilities. And to tell those stories in a courtroom, it's so interesting then to watch the jury uh, discuss what they heard. And by doing that, it raises the stakes because it's not just a book or a group of facts you're learning for an exam. Or they're putting themselves in the shoes of the people who lived in those times. Exactly. Why did this happen? Why did you let this happen? Mm -hmm. Why did you do this? Why was this done to you? And how do we judge it from our perspective or from a larger viewpoint? How will it resonate throughout the rest of time? Well, isn't that a big important part of, of education in general, is to teach people not only the facts of history, but how to mm. understand themselves as participants in current history, what is happening now. Absolutely. That's one of the things that's really, um, I guess, strange about the times we live in and about our education system, especially mm. around history. I think history is a really important one because we look at history as like this old dead thing and not something that we're living right now. We're all going through history. Like in... In 50 years' time, they'll be talking about, oh, yes, the coronavirus outbreak of 2020. Like, yeah, yeah I mean, my grandfather talks about that all the time, you know, or whatever. You know, they will we'll be a part of history, but we don't realize it right now. All the things that we're doing right now are history. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's this traditional sort of great man view of history, right? It's this approach that history is Winston Churchill making a speech. It's uh, Caesar crossing the Rubicon. It's Augustus uh, declaring himself emperor. Uh, it's Socrates in uh, Athens, right? This is what history is. Um, and that is an approach that's important. I, I won't say that it's not. You know, my exams do have... Uh, factual sections. They do right. have multiple choice. Well, multiple you have to. Sections. You have to have something where they're Absolutely. actually showing that they have a knowledge That's the context. of history. Right. That's the context, right? They need to fit the uh, the ideas, the ideologies within that context. That's necessary. But to just have that, it's it's like having uh, the outline of a parachute, right? You jump out of a plane. <laughs> you know what the parachute's supposed to look like, but if you don't fill it in with anything, if you don't understand how it's working and how uh, one event leads to another, and how these ideas play on each other, and how they lead to certain things, and how they led to today. How everything today comes from the ideas of the past, mm. and perhaps the, the, the material conditions of today and the past. Uh, you're just going to plummet and mm. hit the ground hard. 
Yeah. So let's get back to that point about the denunciations then. So what was that about? I did that last year. Sadly, we couldn't do it this year because of coronavirus. Ah. And students are in a bit of an emotional uh, (laughs) tension. Yeah. Uh, Not that students are are fighting in any higher degree than, than, than previously, but... Um, I do get the sense that they are a little bit more fragile in this situation. Because they're isolated. Right, exactly. And I had a lot of my students, like I had students even emailing me saying, or or writing in their journals. We have journals for our English class and uh, they have to write, you know, just, they can write anything they want as long as they fill certain criteria. And how many of them, I mean, literally the the last one, because we've just gone back to school. I think we've had um, one full week and Mm. a few days before that. And... um, a few of my students wrote in their journals, like it was our first week at school and almost all of them wrote something about coming back to school and how excited they were. And that's one of the things that actually I've, I've really thought is a positive side of this, this year is that last year, a lot of my students are like, you know, we've got to go to school and got to work really hard. And these years, like, we get to go to school. Yeah. This is like the best well, experience. They love of, it. They're so of, excited. Think of any prison movie you've ever seen. Right. What's that really dramatic scene where the innocent prisoner is really punished? It's when he's put in isolation. Right. Right? When you put somebody in isolation apart from everyone else, it, it drives them mad. Mm. And even though we're on Zoom and, and we can see each other's faces, it's it's like video games in some right. in some degree. And I'm a lot of my students and and me as well. Like I started to get headaches every day oh, yeah. from teaching on Zoom just because I was staring at a screen for so long. And yeah. especially Thursday, which is my longest day, I have I'm teaching all day. Yeah. And then you know whatever else is going on, and then I'm I just feel like I can't look at a screen after three p.m. I'm just I'm done. I need to I need to turn off all of the electronics and get outside because it just hurts. My eyes just hurt. And I get like these eyeball headaches that just oh. I just think of that when I when I was a teenager and I would play these violent video games and you know you'd, you'd kill 20 terrorists in, in, in the course of half an hour and it didn't feel anything because it's something virtual on the screen uh, being in this environment I kind of feel like this is what we're doing to each other we're creating this sort of well not we're doing it but there is this distance which makes everything a little more tenuous which makes right. communication more easily uh misunderstood right and so you know i've been getting it doesn't quite feel real right and so grades have gone down yeah i noticed that even uh, because we actually have a consistency between um vocabulary tests and things from previous years yeah and um the the test scores are like i think an average of about seven or eight percent lower for Mm. our first vocabulary test back in person yeah because learning online it's like you know we've we've got these um online card kind of systems for vocabulary it just it's there's definitely something about being in person and even now when they're wearing face masks there's something i had a discussion with a student about this the other day actually Mm. that there's something about being able to see someone's face and connecting with them on a human level that is really hard to do when you're wearing a mask it's hard to do online because you're separated by computers but when you're wearing a mask it's like you can't read their emotions very well you can't see whether you're getting through to them and they can't see that with me as well because I'm having to wear a mask too have you ever read um, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Um, I think I read it in school like 20 years ago but I've forgotten Um, there are movies (laughs) (laughs) there's this great line where uh, Jekyll is describing his transformation into Hyde right Uh, and and basically you know I'm sure everybody knows, but the story is there is this man, uh, Dr. Jekyll, who has a secret part of himself. He takes a formula and he becomes Hyde, this disfigured monster, but nobody can actually name the disfigurement. Uh, He has an evil presence and does these evil things. 
And the way that he describes the transformation is that he says it's a solution of uh, the bonds of responsibility. It is the destruction of all the bonds that held him to the life of a person in a community. As a teacher, I have certain bonds to my students, to other teachers, to the administration, to my uh, wife. I have bonds to all these different people. Students have bonds to each other. They have bonds to the cafeteria staff. They have bonds to uh, their clubs, etc., etc. When you dissolve all these bonds and you're a singular, uh, singular entity, you are unrestricted in every mm -hmm. sense of the word. And that can lead to uh, nightmares. I mean, because... Mm -hmm. There's nothing holding you back, and there's nothing giving you direction, except mm -hmm. for, of course, you know, the the hour you spend with Mr. Medrano in Zoom. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're we're going back next week, and hopefully, it's going to be an easy transition. That really makes me think a lot about how we talk with each other online as well, and how. Um, and I I hate to constantly beat the dead horse of social media bad, but yeah. it's really interesting the way you put that, where it's like we're severing the bonds of human connection when we're not connecting with each other in person. And when we see other people as just a, a handle on Twitter or... That's or our a, mask. Yeah, it's it's a mask over all of us. Because That's it's not only the mask over the other person that we don't get to see their humanity. Yeah. It's the mask over ourselves that we assume that others can't see our humanity. And so we are more likely to be aggressive we're more likely to attack other people even do things that if you thought about doing in person like how many how many times have you seen someone say something vicious online you think you'd never sure. say that to someone into their face I mean, you go, we can go right back to the republic right the ring of gaiges you know you find this ring makes you invisible what's the poor farmer gonna do he's gonna sleep with the king's wife and kill the king uh, invisible man takes his formula, becomes invisible. What's he going to do? Go on his reign of terror, start killing people. Jekyll, he gets his formula, gets a mask. What's he going to do? Start going out and killing people and doing all these evil well, that's things. That's a very Hobbesian view of the world, right? We're all just like, <laughs> we're all evil. Dark. I mean, a lot well, of these are stories as well. Like, we're, the, somehow, we're all evil, dark people, and we're only really held together by this um, vague sense of, well, if I get in trouble for it, you know, if someone mm -hmm. catches me, then there'll be someone who will punish me. But if I, no one was going to catch me, then I would do whatever I wanted. I would, I would break everything. I would burn everything to the ground. I, I think that's one way that you can interpret it. The other, I think, is that when you are put apart from society, right? Because in all of these stories, it's not, uh, well, at least the, the latter, uh, the latter two, it's not that these people, uh, found this thing that allowed them to secretly do the things that they wanted. They were rejected by society or they were somehow pushed out of society into these spaces where then they felt like they had no other opportunity. Mm. I read them as saying that inclusiveness, as saying that understanding uh, are ways to bring things together, to bring people together, rather than if we turn around, you know, Charlie is going to steal a cookie. I mean, you, you never know. <laughs> I think, here's what I think. I think that if I close my eyes and I left this coffee right here, that you wouldn't steal it, even if I would have no idea that it was you. Is that... Do you that's, that's, yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. Even, even in a world without corona, I would, uh, 
I would probably not steal your coffee. Perhaps not. But if you were somebody on the margins of society, if you're somebody who you know, felt like the bonds you had to society were artificial or were superficial or were, uh, you know, uh, tenuous, perhaps you would. Well, that's one of the arguments that a lot of people make with regards to the the social contract, right? Like, that's a big part of, you know, I'm everyone's property is to be respected, people's mm. rights and their 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 right to life and liberty and all of those things that you know people often hold up in things like the American Constitution that we have a responsibility to each other as well as other people to us mm. and so when people feel like that part of the deal is not being honored yeah. then that's when we really have social disorder that's when we really have um, serious yeah. problems yeah not to get too you know political sciencey about it but you know we we're born with certain attributes right as humans we're all born with generally we're all born with similar desires wants abilities and requirements and we create these political societies we form these uh governments and societies you know for a singular reason we find protection in numbers or we feel it's going to advantage us in some way once these societies actually harm us once they're actually here just to target us why in the world would we be a part of it it makes absolute sense for, for those who are rejected by society or who are on the margins of it to therefore feel no no bonds to it or, or not feel bound by it or not mm. feel any responsibility to it. And it goes straight back to the idea of the classroom. If you have a student who is being rejected by other students, who's being marginalized by other students, who isn't being uh, treated well by the administration of the school, by the other teachers, or at least not even getting the attention they require at home, how do you reach that kid? It's going to be almost impossible. That's why a classroom environment based on trust, mutual trust, and I don't want to get to, you know, but love to some extent is so necessary. Hmm. Or else you are going to have people on the margin and who knows what's going to happen with that. Right. And that's a perfect segue to talk about something I've been meaning to talk with you about, oh. which is denunciations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've tried to come to this three times. This is... Because this is yeah. a fascinating idea. I really like this idea, which is why I'm going to steal it from you, if that's okay. Sure. But, um, but I want you to explain how this how this teaches a lesson. Yeah. So uh, just like we did the uh, Nazi trial this year, last year we studied uh, the Soviet Union into some detail. Specifically, we studied the origins of the Soviet Union, Lenin, and then, of course, Stalin. Mm -hmm. And Stalin's very specific form of rule um and the sort of fear and terror that he used to bring people under his control to to keep himself at the top uh the purges the great terror etc etc mm -hmm. and th again just like uh studying about nazi germany or even uh you know american slavery it's so difficult for a lot of students and even you know myself perhaps yourself to get in this mindset mm. how does it seem world, so abstract though. how could yeah. you think one human is worth less than another how could you think the determining factor is skin tone or religious background or ancestry right how could you turn in your mother and father to the government for complaining about something how could you get to that mindset and so we did a class activity <coughs> which was framed uh as me being upset because I said, you know, I heard that some students have been saying bad things about me and I don't like it. It's violating the school's code of conduct. Now, 
you're not in trouble, but I really need to know when it's happening. So if you hear something, let me know, send me an email. If I find out that you heard something had happened and you didn't tell me, you're in trouble. That's it. Now the trouble of course was just you're gonna get a, an extra homework assignment. You know, it, it wasn't anything extreme. I'm not gonna torture the kids. Yeah. But what was interesting- there's, there's, some, there's some kind of like- um, There's stakes. and stick. Yeah, I, I mean, there's stakes, right? It's right. not like nothing's gonna happen. Um, but what was really interesting was uh, people started to turn each other in. Oh really? And the thing is, once you're turned in for saying something bad, you know, I say, wow, I really question your loyalty. And, and they caught on pretty quickly that this is, this is... Did you actually confront students directly about that? Like when... So what would happen is they'd send me an email saying, hey, I heard that this person said this thing about the school. And then I would email that person and say, I want you to know that a denunciation has been made against you. This is really unfortunate. It makes me question your loyalty to the school in my classroom. Wow. I think a good way to prove your loyalty is by informing me of any other students who are acting on, you know, disloyally. Right. So, so it creates this kind of like, but I mean, there's, yeah. there's an ethical element to that too, right? Like sure. as, a, as a teacher, like how, how much are you going to mess with these students' <laughs> mental health in Absolutely. a way I, um, I, I made to sure, worry about each other? I made sure to gamify it a lot. They okay. knew, they knew it was a game. They knew it was an activity okay. of sorts, but that's what makes it so interesting. I'll tell you about another activity we did just uh, last week. But that's what made it so interesting in that it becomes a game. So it becomes a lot of fun, right? And so people start reporting on each other like, oh, you know, the two boys are friends, right? And one boy will say, oh, the other boy was wearing sunglasses in the classroom, you know? And then immediately, like one second later, the other boy will email me and say, oh, he said something bad about this teacher's class. So you know they're like pairing yeah. up. But as the denunciations build up, right? And as students start to get more and more denunciations, they started to tell me things that would actually get them in trouble. Mm. Students are not allowed to have certain social media accounts. Okay. And I would get screenshots or, or pictures of pretty vulgar things about me or the class or the school in those social media accounts, right? From other students, knowing that they would potentially get in a lot of trouble. Or I'd find out things that, again, just, I had to, you know, there was an ethical question on my side, like, should I report this to the school? Is, is it that yeah. serious? Now, luckily, there was nothing extreme. There's nothing like, you know, this, this kid killed this kid. And, like that. <laughs> um, and there was only one instance where, you know, I just mentioned something to a homeroom teacher. I said, hey, I just want you to be aware of this. Okay. But it was so interesting in that everyone started to betray each other best friends, uh, close friend groups. Mm. And of course, in the end, I don't tell them who said what. But out of a class of, what was it, 32 students, there was only one who didn't denounce anyone. Wow. One. Isn't that, but doesn't that seem like it's, um, there's there's a number code for this. I forgot what the, what the idea was, but it's like mm. the... The number of people in any population will be like the square root of the population are the ones who um, will stand up for themselves or who will stand up for their values. And so if you look at a, a number like 32, yeah. that's like um, more or less, I mean, you'd think it would even be more. That would be like four or five people, but it's actually only one. Like So even yeah. less than the square root of the number of people in your class are willing to actually stand up and, and say what they... Or maybe, like, not well, stand up it, in that case. Here's the thing. The, the kid I'm thinking of, I mean, he he was really pissed off the whole project. Yeah. 
Really? He said uh, some pretty bad things. Now, of course, you know, as a teacher, you can't take these things seriously. Um, yeah. Because they're teenagers. Their brains are still cooking. They're not fully able, mature to process their emotions. And so they come out sometimes in sloppy ways. And it wasn't anything terrible. But, you know, a couple of bad words. So he didn't enjoy it. But he never participated. Right. Um, there were two other students, these two girls, who are, you know, the, the perfect girls. They've always done everything well, study for the test, stay after class, ask the questions. And the last day of the project, the very last day, they had not done anything up to then. They didn't want that homework assignment. Mm. And just before class, they did it. Wow. And so, you know, I said, okay, you know what? Nobody has to do the homework assignment, but let me show you the results. And in total, I, can, I don't remember how many total, but I mean, there were, you know, dozens and dozens of denunciations. I didn't reveal any names, but I said everyone except this one person did it. And I gave him this funny, you know, like Mr. Madrano's Freedom Award or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it meant anything to yeah. him, but yeah, it's a cute little thing. But I mean, this is a really, I think it's a really serious and really interesting case. And I think especially well, when we, we, I think as a society, somehow yeah. people believe that we're so different from the Nazis, from um, the Stalinists, that we would never do anything like that. Like, yeah. I would be Oskar Schindler, right? Of course I would, because yeah. I have these values, and I really... Be and it's, it's, almost, it's almost insane to think that, I think, that somehow you'd be brave enough to risk your life for people you don't even know, yeah. when in a classroom with all your friends... You'd sell your friends out so you don't have to do extra homework, you know? Yeah, uh, I do. Uh, I'll say two things. Uh, the first one is that to some extent, I do feel some gladness that we live in a society where everyone at least wants to be that. Mm -hmm. I recognize without question that you're right, that everyone won't, that most people will go with the flow. But at least we've created the society in which these people are heroes, in which standing up to authority when the authority is morally wrong can be seen as heroic mm -hmm. because that hasn't always been true especially in in japan uh the second thing is that i asked the students to write reflections after the project and a lot of them were very similar and they said at the beginning it was fun it was really funny mm. and by the end i was terrified mm. and then you know i mean there are of course ethical questions but um i feel like they they had a little taste of the Great Terror, right? When when Stalin kills something like 650,000 Russians who are often falsely accused of being traitors. Right. Trotskyists. So these kind of activities, again, they bring this sort of emotional resonance. They bring this deeper connection to the material, to the subject, Right. that uh, a traditional education, well, I don't even know if we'd call it traditional, but a boring education, a fact-based education, a textbook-based Scantron-based, test-based, uh, assessment-based education may not. Right. And I was really inspired by uh, somebody named Jane Elliott. Have you ever heard of her? Um, was she the woman who did the brown eyes, blue eyes thing? The she... Racism, or not, not racism, like um, uh, discrimination yeah. thing in her classroom. Yeah. She is. But the reason I was influenced by her is because when I was a kid, I had a teacher who did a very similar project with me mm. and my classmates. I remember nothing about school. Maybe up to high school, right? <laughs> right. Uh, for me, school was Pokemon cards, Magic the Gathering, uh, uh, Bubblegum, and... Warhammer 40k. 
I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't get uh, to there. But... I was just me. Okay, I'm alone okay. on that one. But yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and Counter Strike on the weekends. But I I remember it's burned into my brain the day our teachers gave us these little cards, and some of us were squares and some of us were triangles. And the uh, on the first day, the squares they you know got to sit in the front. They got to go to recess early. They got to have a longer lunch. Mm-hmm. They were called on. They were congratulated for the right answers. And I just remember, like one of the one of the, um, I'm sorry, it wasn't triangles. It was squares and diamonds. Okay. And one of the you know diamond girls, I remember she was crying. I felt uncomfortable. Some of the students tried to form an insurrection. Right? They were like, "We're not going to go back in the classroom." And the teacher comes out, and here's the authority, the authority standing before you, and she says, "Get in there, or I'm going to call the principal." And what do we do? We go in. And then the next day was reversed. And. Again, I don't want to criticize the at least California education system, which you know I think has great universities, and, and I enjoyed my high school. But that is the one activity burned into my mind from from my uh, younger education. Right, but the, it's because it had emotional content. Absolutely, and, and so much of our education now is is somehow focused on this fact rote based learning, which. Some things you do need to learn by rote. And sure. I, I mean, my sister, oh, my sure. little sister, didn't learn her times tables in school. And <laughs> I did. And so I can do mental math really quickly. Yeah. And she still struggles now, I think, to some extent. I'm not, I mean, she's super smart. She's much smarter yeah. than me. But um, I think to some extent she still struggles sometimes with um, just quick addition or quick multiplication yeah. in her head. But um, I think some, why, like, how do I say some things do need to be learned by rote, but some sure. things need to be learned in your heart that you Absolutely. understand like this. And then you need to be able to recognize it when it happens in the world. And I, and I don't doubt for a moment that those kind of lessons, like your denunciations lesson, mm. that this can and will and possibly right now is happening again in our society. Um, <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I mean, all you need to do is look at what's happening with JK Rowling being piled on for, Oh, um, J.K. Rowling is uh, very famous. She wrote Harry Potter. She wrote Harry Potter. Um, Right now, she has had um, massive public outcry about supposedly transphobic messages she wrote on her website and tweets that she sent. And the number of people who have piled on, the number of people who have denounced her... Um, despite, you know, Mm. if you actually read what she wrote, she was saying, you know, love who you want and you know, be kind to everyone um, but biological gender is a real thing and to to see people piling on her for this uh, transgression um, it's really interesting to, to think that you know, maybe in some sense we haven't come all that far from the the sort of Stalinist denunciations I'm, I'm not uh, familiar with you know this particular uh, case. there are a lot of other cases like I mean, maybe this is just a current modern example but I would say when I think of denunciation I think it's more the idea that when you have an authority and that authority uh, creates no space between you and itself when there is no individual anymore, mm. there are no individual decisions, there's no uh, individual choices, values, or morals, but rather you are an extension of this authority. Right. That's what I imagine when I think of this denunciation project. 
where you turn on your family and you turn on your friends because this authority is right. telling you to or they may punish you. And to. there's no difference between you and the authority. Right. There, there's, there's no individual. Not, there's, right. There's no individual. Right. And, and some people call this, you know, this is what Marxism is. And, and I think there's some truth to that. But I, mean, I think this is more unique to the, the Stalinist model where terror was uh, the method he used to create this single identity. I mean, what's really interesting, fascinating to me is that a lot of the people who went through these show trials who uh, were found guilty when they were innocent, forced to confess to crimes, remained very loyal to the Soviet Union. Um, I forgot his name. Um, there was uh, one of the, the first troika from the, the first triumvirate when, when Stalin's taking power. He forms this uh, triumvirate with uh, two other people. I believe uh, Kamenev, I believe his name was. Mm -hmm. But as you know, Stalin does he turned on his former allies he's going to have them arrested and and you know put to prison or shot the last thing he says to his his young wife before he gets taken away is raise our child a bolshevik mm. keep them in this make them a part of it right so even at the end there's a sort of inability to disassociate yourself from uh, this greater idea. Um, and, and sometimes that can be good, right? It can lead to self-sacrifice. It leads to somebody dedicating their lives to serving a, a greater purpose. I mean, it kind of sounds like a lot like Socrates when he um, he was denounced by the state and, and um, sentenced to kill himself. And he didn't try to run, even though he had the option. Mm. And he said, you know, if this is democracy, this is what democracy is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... I think there there are some parallels we can draw there, and I would just say that what I wanted my students to pick up from the time that we have together is that blind obedience uh, has terrible outcomes. It can have some good outcomes, right? If your teacher tells you, hey, everyone, write a Valentine's Day card to your fellow classmate, there's no other option, you have to do it. Everyone gets a Valentine's Day card. It's not so bad, right? The world didn't end. But the focus of a lot of the history classes we have, right? Uh, uh, colonization, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, Stalinist Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as, as, uh, Jim Crow America. A lot of it is people obeying authority or tradition without questioning it. Right. And that's where a lot of the issue is. And so I want them to build the individual. I want them to leave my classes having built up some kind of individual sense of ideology or value system, beliefs, whatever. It could be something I disagree with completely. I think even at that point, it's okay because they're so young, right? They're going to have more experiences. Right. But as long as they have the ability to independently come to some conclusion to reject authority to some degree. Not, they don't have to reject everything, right? I mean, I, I, like, I like trains. <laughs> I, I like cupcakes. But as long as they have that ability, I th that's where I, I measure my success. Right. As to be able to stand up for their values against uh, a authoritarian or regime even, or even authoritarian characters, individuals Or in even lives. tradition or even uh, what came before them, right? That sort of laziness that comes from just following what other people did before you. That's a kind of authoritarianism as well, except you're a part of it because you've just continued what other people have done before you. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's how I view my role the, as a liberal arts educator. I need to teach them how to be a free person, have a free mind uh, in the society.
you. This has been awesome, and I'm really excited to share it with people. Thank you so much for coming and talking about your no, your insights about education. Thank you for having me and, and for the delicious iced coffee. <laughs>